0: help. And we need your help. Help us, Father, to see your clear instruction in your word. Holy Spirit, please come and apply your word comfortingly to the afflicted and to afflict those who are perhaps wrongly comfortable. Oh, Father, help us to see your good purpose in your word. Strengthen us Give us understanding. Give us humility. And Father, ultimately what we want is we want our church to be characterized by marriages that display and reveal the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. So please plant that in our hearts as we seek to do good in the world in a way that will draw attention and understanding to your gospel and to your Christ. Form this in us, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, friends, thank you so much for the opportunity for my little family to go and take a break and visit other parts of our family. We went up to upstate New York. We had a great time. Uh, I got to hear preaching for a solid week. That doesn't, There's not much that makes Gordon happier than... Hearing preaching and getting to relax with my family and uh, to enjoy a lake, it was just wonderful. Thank you so much for for that. And thank you, John, for preaching so faithfully and caring for the church so well Uh, in my absence. I really, it's just a wonderful family that we've got here, and I'm so grateful to be able to be a part of it. I have written I don't know how many introductions to this message, and none of them work. (laughs) Marriage is incredibly revealing, isn't it? There are things that I did not know about myself until I got married. Lots of things that I really wished I didn't have to know about myself (laughs) that suddenly became very apparent when I got married. The funny thing about marriage, though, is that marriage is supposed to be revealing not just of ourselves. Marriage is actually supposed to be revealing of God. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Marriage is supposed to also be, in that sense, a means of grace. It's a way that the people in a marriage sometimes tangibly experience grace. But marriage isn't even just for the people in the marriage. It's actually supposed to be a means of grace to the people that come from the marriage, so the family that surrounds that marriage and literally anyone who touches the marriage, anyone who comes into contact with that marriage. God's purpose for that marriage is that it would display the gospel. It would be a means of grace that we'd get a picture of what it's like for God to love someone unconditionally without reservation, utterly faithfully, freely, continually, despite what they do. In 1 Peter, Peter is calling on us to fix our hopes as believers on Christ and to fix our hopes on his coming kingdom. When we get to chapter 2, He wants us to see that who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us should have a visible influence on our life. And in the last few weeks, we've seen how all of chapter 2, starting at verse 13, all the way to chapter 3, verse 17, which we haven't even gotten to yet, is really an application of chapter 2, verse 12, which is, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, the life we lead should lead others to Christ. The point of Peter's instruction here is that the life that we lead as Christians should lead others to Christ. A Christian is someone who is following Christ and who is helping those around him or her follow Christ. If your Christian life does not include helping others to follow Christ, then I don't know what you mean when you say that you are a Christian. Because a Christian is someone who follows Christ and helps others to do the same. In chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, Peter then illustrates this idea that the life that we lead should lead others to Christ. He shows how this affects some of the most basic parts of our life, how we relate to the government that is over us, how we relate to our employers, even really difficult employers. In fact, that seems to be Peter's main concern is really hard situations. When it's hard to be a Christian, what do you do? And now in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Peter applies the same idea to wives and husbands. And so our main idea today is how we treat our spouse reveals our submission to Christ. How we treat our spouse reveals our submission to Christ. And just at the beginning here, I know we've got probably a fair number of folks here who are single for one reason or another, or it's that stage in life. And you might have a question in your heart like, this passage is about married people. Why should I pay any attention? Why should I listen? Well, friends, first of all, all of us are the bride of Christ. So all of us are engaged, as it were, to Christ. He is our husband. He is our spouse. He comes for us at the last day. And so we need to learn how to submit to Christ. No matter who you are, no matter what your estate is in this life, you need to learn how to submit to Christ. Secondly, it actually helps you understand what your married brother or your married sister in Christ experiences. This can give you insight into how to love your married brother or your married sister well. It helps us encourage one another and especially those who are in the estate of marriage by cultivating and to cultivate fruitful and faithful marriages. It helps us also, depending on what stage in life we're at, prepare to marry. It can help you understand what the goal of marriage is. It can guard you against difficult kinds of marriages can guard us against unfruitful marriages, difficult marriages, and ultimately can help us distinguish the difference between godly relationships and worldly relationships. Because there is a world of difference between the way the world sees marriage and the way God sees marriage. So there's, I think, lots of reasons why we can all benefit from meditating on God's word to us about the state of marriage. The way we're going to handle this passage is I'm going to imitate the flow of the passage. That means we're going to basically have two points. And in keeping with the last two sermons I've preached, first point is mega point. <laughs> it's, it's, it's going to be a long, substantial point with a series of ideas as we work through the passage. And then we'll have a second point. The first point deals with wives. The second with husbands. First point, wives, reveal Christ to your husband by submitting to him for his eternal good. Wives, reveal Christ to your husbands by submitting to him for his eternal good. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to look with me. We're going to look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Peter writes, Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct so notice here first of all that peter is addressing wives generally wives of both believers and unbelievers this phrase do not obey, those who do not obey the word, or if some who do not obey the word, that just means that they're not believers. They don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't trust yet in Jesus. It means they haven't accepted the gospel. Such a situation, as some of us certainly know, introduces still more difficulty into what is admittedly already a challenging relationship. If you take one sinner and you take another sinner and you add them together, that does not equal easy happiness. If you take a believer and an unbeliever who are both sinners, that makes it harder. However, all right, we should note at first, this is in part why Paul forbids Christians from marrying knowingly an unbeliever it's for our own good and it's for the good of the marriage we should also note however though that conversion as radical as it is is not grounds to end a marriage so for instance if you came to Christ after marriage and your husband did not come to Christ or if your wife did not come to Christ that is not grounds for you to abandon them or leave them or divorce them. That's not grounds to end the marriage, even though conversion is the most radical change that any of us will ever experience in our life. Instead, Peter calls wives to remain faithful. And he says, you have an opportunity, even in this really difficult circumstance with an unbelieving husband, to work for your partner's spiritual good. And so also husbands unto wives in a different way. So let's look again at verses 1 and 2. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that, or in order that, even if some do not obey the word, they may be one, without a word, by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So what you can see there is the goal of a wife's conduct... And remember that word conduct? We, we've been talking about that a lot these last few weeks, right? Conduct means how we live in all of life. So this isn't just talking about a wife's submission. This is how a wife lives in all of life with relationship to her husband. The goal of a wife's conduct is to honor and glorify Christ by revealing Christ to her husband. The goal of a wife's conduct is to honor and glorify Christ by revealing Christ to her husband. This raises a question that could honestly easily take the rest of our time. We we can't spend it entirely on this. But the question is then, so what is submission? And why does the Bible only command wives to submit? So first, let's handle what's submission. To be subject, that's the verb that you see here, be subject, means to willingly accept another's authority. And this is in part why husbands are nowhere commanded in Scripture to submit to their wife. Because in God's providence, the husband is to reflect Christ's authority and care over the church by serving as the head of his own household. You can see that in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, where the apostle says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So husbands, it would be a good idea for all of us to review what follows in that passage this week to help inform us about how we should be loving our wives. You can spend some profitable time this week reading Ephesians 5:22 and following and reflecting on what God asks of you to do in order to lead your wife well. Well, let's make just a few qualifying statements about submission. First, submission does not constitute agreement. Submission does not constitute agreement. And submission may be expressed despite disagreement. There are times where you know, my wife or, or other godly wives will, will come to their husband and say, Honey, I don't think that what you've proposed is a good decision. I don't think that it's a good decision because of this reason, this reason, and this reason. It's concerning to me. However if you still feel like that's the best choice for our family, I'll follow your lead. So submission does not constitute agreement. And it can exist even when you continue to disagree. You may still think the idea is not a great idea, but you can go along with it all the same. The same is true. Husbands can also choose to, to, to do this as well. Secondly, submission reflects A difference in role, but not equality of value. Submission reflects a difference in role, but not equality or value. Nowhere does scripture teach, for instance, that women are in some respect inferior to men. Intellectually or morally. It doesn't teach, for instance, that women are somehow more prone to sin than men are. Indeed, Peter, in this very passage, says that wives are co-heirs of eternal life. He says that in verse 7. He says, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So, I tried to think of a good way to illustrate this, and nothing I come up with is really working, but we'll just try anyway. You don't have to do the same job to have the same value. You don't have to do the same job to have the same value. Like a knife and a cutting board are both very valuable instruments, and you can't do the job without the both of them. Or a needle and thread are both excellent tools. You need both of them if you're going to stitch a garment. You could pick any illustration that you think serves better. <laughs> the point is you don't have to have the same job to be of equal value. Even though our world seems to think otherwise, submission and headship are not a reflection of a given woman or a given man's aptitude or ability. It's not even a reflection of all men's or all women's given aptitude or ability or their capacity. It is a reflection of their calling in God's providence. Friends, there's going to be a lot of us who God calls in a number of different aspects of life, whether it's in your job or in your relationships or in your family, to a role that is really hard. I think he does that deliberately to cause us to lean on him more fully, to serve him better. And many of us, myself included especially, Talk to my wife. (laughs) Many of us struggle to inhabit our appointed role. But I think that's causing us and pushing us to rely more on God. God simply chose to have men and women reflect his grace in different, complementary ways. The next element about submission that we need to know is that a wife's submission is a free gift. It may not be demanded and it may not be coerced. Scripture commands wives to submit, but it never permits a husband to demand their submission or to coerce it by any means, forceful or otherwise. You could also say the same is true the other way around too. Scripture commands a man to exercise headship and authority and leadership in their home, but a wife can't compel him to do so. So why is Peter focusing so much on the wife's role and less the husband's? Before I go on, I had this quote that I found earlier today. I'm just going to hunt for it, sorry, for one moment because I think it's helpful. Love is a choice. I'm quoting myself, but it's from somewhere else. Otherwise, I'd cite it. Love is a choice. Marriage becomes distorted when it becomes about a struggle for control instead of a pathway to Christ. Because marriage was designed to reveal the gospel and to apply God's grace to wives and to husbands and to everyone their marriage touches. So, consequently, the necessary foundation of a good and godly marriage is for each member to know God and to strive to love Him above all. Love is a choice. Headship is a choice. Submission is a choice. We can't compel either side of it. They're supposed to reflect the free work of God's grace. So why is Peter focusing so much on a wife's role less than a husband's? Or at least why does it seem that way? Well, let's consider the broader context here. All of Peter's examples focus on the person with less power and with greater vulnerability. He addresses citizens, not rulers, He addresses domestic slaves, not their masters. And this is because I think God calls the church often to act from a position of social weakness. The church is supposed to act from a posture of vulnerability, not strength. In fact, oftentimes if you look at history, when the church gets social power or when the church gets political power, typically bad things result from that. God, it seems, delights in using the weaker, vulnerable, exposed position to display his greater glory. And so, Peter is addressing those situations most especially here. In every case, Peter urges us to see our circumstances as an opportunity to reveal God's grace to those that are around us. So, friends it's hard enough to submit to a good authority. How much more an unbelieving spouse. So because a wife's circumstances typically place her in a more vulnerable position, sometimes involving greater difficulty, Peter pays special attention to how she can rely on God's grace to reveal him to others, especially her husband. So you can notice here While there are similarities between servants and masters, and while there are similarities between wives and husbands, Peter does not treat these cases identically. For instance, a Christian slave may need to endure physical suffering. He specifically says you might endure beatings because of your Christian faith. But scripture does not call, for instance, a wife to submit to or to accept Abuse, certainly not. So, as in all cases, we can see that submission is not without exception. Peter did not submit to the local governing authorities when they commanded him not to preach the gospel. And slaves are not to submit to masters when those masters tell them to do something that goes against the commands of Christ. So also Christian wives, especially those of pagan husbands, were not able to submit to their husbands, all of their husbands' expectations or all of their husbands' commands. So let me give you just a few pictures of that. Most Roman husbands expected their wives to embrace their religion, expected their wives to embrace their friends and their activities But a godly woman simply could not fulfill some of these expectations. She would, for instance, choose to faithfully gather with other believers to worship Christ. Well, certainly, those people would not be friends of her pagan husband. He he would not associate with them. But she would choose to, every week, go and associate with these people who were not her husband's friends. She would, for instance... Be unable or at least unwilling to offer incense or prayers to her husband's ancestors, which would have just been assumed. You would worship the husband's dead parents. She would be unable or willing to attend immoral public feasts or worship. And that, in a particularly public sense, would injure her husband's reputation. If a Roman man did not have his wife in attendance with him at certain feasts, it would look bad. He would lose standing. And Peter knew that this kind of radical obedience to Christ, an unwillingness to, to give up these aspects of obedience to Christ, would simply further strain marriages that are already a difficult relationship. And so he urges wives to both obey Christ and to pursue their husband's eternal good by lovingly submitting to him wherever possible. And in this way, she is to try and win his soul for Christ, which is because how a wife treats her husband reflects her ultimate submission to Christ. How a wife treats her husband reflects her ultimate submission to Christ. So the million-dollar question then is, well, how... Should a woman, how should a wife, submit to her husband? So Peter gives us a series of descriptors. The first is by fearing God. By fearing God. And we're getting this from the word respectful. Look at verse 2. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct the word respectful there literally means with fear but what we've noticed in the book of first peter is that christians are only to fear one person right christians only fear god you can see that in chapter 2 verse 17 where he says honor everyone love the brotherhood fear god Honor the emperor. And so also you can see it again in verse 6 when Peter says that believing wives, if they're going to be like the daughters of Sarah, they, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Peter is not encouraging wives to live in fear of their husbands but instead to let their greater regard for God shape how they treat their husband. To make your decisions as a wife based ultimately on what Christ has done for you at the cross. And this is fundamentally the theme for all Christians throughout 1 Peter. You can see that in chapter 1 verses 17 and 18. He says, if you call on him, and he's speaking to all Christians here, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. How? Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You see there, he says, Conduct yourselves with fear. In fear of who? Other people? No. In fear of God. How? Why? By reflecting on the enormous price that God paid to ransom you for himself. What does this look like? This might mean not retaliating when you really want to. It means not lashing out Maybe it's not using sinful methods in order to assert yourself. It's good to assert yourself in marriage. It's good to communicate, to tell your husband what you're thinking. Maybe it will be choosing to respond with Christian character even when he makes it really difficult. To be patient with him. To be mindful of how God has been patient with you and to extend that grace to your husband. So first, he wants wives to submit to their husbands by fearing God, not their husband. Secondly, he says, pursue purity. You can get this from the word pure that you can see in verse 2. To be pure means to be unmixed, chiefly with sin. You can see that laid out in 1 Timothy 5, verse 22, where the apostle says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others, keep yourself pure. So this has wide application. From sexual purity, I can only imagine that someone who is married to an unbeliever, especially if that unbeliever makes it really hard in marriage. If it's a very difficult relationship, it would be easy. I would imagine that Satan would try and tempt you to desire someone else to be your husband or to have no husband at all. That sounds like just the sort of thing Satan would do. It can also be moral purity, to persist in obeying Christ even when it's really hard. It could refer to purity of motives, meaning we mustn't use our faith as a cover for sin. And this, again, is something that all Christians have to observe. This isn't just something that wives have to observe. We need to avoid serving ourselves at the expense of someone else and using religion as the excuse to do it. Especially if that's our husband. You can see this is true of all Christians in chapter 2, verse 16, when Peter says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. It would be very confusing, I think, to an unbelieving husband if you insisted, for instance, on gathering with God's people, but you just went to Starbucks. Or if you insisted, for instance, on honesty in the family taxes, but you stole from your employer. That kind of hypocrisy would destroy the witness of the gospel. Our faith must not become an excuse to ignore our husband, to belittle him, to demean him. This doesn't mean, obviously, that Christian wives must be perfect. Indeed, our sin as Christians, and especially in marriage, can serve as an opportunity for grace by illustrating what true repentance looks like. Remember that an unbeliever doesn't know what repentance even really is in many cases. And even if they know what it is, they don't like it. But seeing true repentance worked out can be a wonderful commendation of the gospel. Husbands, just in general, you should be swift to lead your marriage in repentance. When there's conflict and there's difficulty in a marriage, step one is... What have I done to contribute to this, and what can I own up to? What can I bring to the table and say, I'm sorry, this was wrong. Please forgive me. Real repentance can paint a wonderful picture of grace. But in short, Peter is far more concerned, as you can see with all of this, he's far more concerned about what's going on on the inside than he is what's going on on the outside. He's more concerned about inner beauty than he is outer beauty. And that's why the third element of what it means to submit is to prioritize virtue over vanity. And this we're getting from this idea of the hidden person. So if you look at verses three and four, the apostle says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let the adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This word for adorning is cosmos, which is where we get our word cosmetics. Now, Peter is not forbidding women from caring for their appearance. He's not forbidding them from wearing cosmetics. He's not forbidding them from wearing jewelry or, or, or nice clothing. And for some of you, you need to hear me say this. That's against what the Puritans thought. (laughs) The Puritans took it that this was an absolute forbidding of all external beautification. I don't think that's the case. Inner beauty, though, we can say, is not the only form of true beauty. Inner beauty is not all that matters. But what Peter is warning us against is immodesty and excess against basically drawing undue attention to ourselves rather than to Christ and his cross. And so it's going to be very hard for me to apply this to every individual circumstance. And we would be, it would, we would be in danger if we were to apply this principle woodenly. There's many ways to be, in that sense, immodest. And The only illustration I could think of was how my father, when when he was teaching me how to drive, one of the things that he told me is like, when you get onto a highway, you need to travel with the speed of traffic. If you're going excessively faster than everyone else, that's dangerous. And if you go excessively slower than everyone else, that is also dangerous. There's not just this simple sense of, if I do less, I will be safer. So we can't apply this principle woodenly. So what should we be aiming at? Instead, I think, of focusing so hard on what is or isn't modesty or what constitutes it, instead, we as Christians should be interested in cultivating a love of virtue. Because if you love the things of Christ and if you want to please Christ, if you want to cultivate that inner beauty, the outer beauty will follow. It'll sort itself out. God will give you wisdom through the church that's around you and through your family and through the circumstances that you're in to help you know what loving Christ looks like in this way. Peter is calling wives then to let their heart be captive to Christ's affections. We can all remember what God says to Samuel when he's choosing the next king of Israel. He says, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So if beauty is in the eye of the beholder, then the question is, who do you want to call you beautiful? Because God finds the imperishable hidden beauty of a virtuous spirit, a gentle and a quiet heart. He finds that very precious. Friends, what attracts you? What do you find beautiful in yourself? And what do you find beautiful in others? What kind of beauty are you trying to obtain? What kind of beauty are you trying to cultivate in others? Young men, I encourage you. You should look for a woman who is more concerned about inner beauty than outer beauty. It's not that outer beauty doesn't matter. And it's a wonderful and a glorious thing. And God gives that to many of us. Young women, you should watch out for a man who prioritizes outer beauty over inner beauty. And I know we're getting pushed on it, it's getting pushed on us from all sides. The world is going to continually shout to us that what you look like, that's the measure of who you are. And that that's what matters most. Even to the point that we're willing to. Send some of our smallest and most vulnerable children into extraordinarily dangerous circumstances to change what they look like. Friends, outer beauty isn't the measure of who you are. Don't give in to it. Notice how Peter says this inner beauty is imperishable. It's just like the inheritance that God bestows on his saints. Friends, one of the things I love about sanctification is it's not just a temporary change. God is growing in us an eternal and an unfading beauty. So what does this beauty consist of? Well, he says, fourth, it's a gentle and a quiet spirit. So submission is by being gentle and loving. Peter says in verse 4, let your adorning be the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Gentle, we can remember, is how Jesus describes his own heart in Matthew 11, verse 29. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. To be gentle means not to be rough, not to be boastful, not to be rude. That's probably calling to mind what Love is defined as in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 6. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Those are all pictures of gentleness. A gentle spirit doesn't crush another person's spirit, certainly not deliberately. It's someone who makes peace. It's someone who doesn't stir up conflict. In short, Christians in general and wives in particular shouldn't be looking to pick a fight, especially with their unbelieving husbands. Now, some of us might be saying right now, but Pastor, you don't know what I have to put up with. And you're right, I don't. God has blessed me exceptionally in my marriage three things I would remind you of. The first is something I remind myself of constantly. God put up with a lot from you. You're not the easiest person to get along with either. <laughs> Nor am I. Second thing is that God will provide you the grace that you need to show his grace to others. He doesn't say it'll be easy. He says he'll give you what you need. And thirdly, that everything in life, and I mean everything, is part of God's providence to make you more like himself and to reveal his glory in you. Even and especially a hard marital relationship navigating difficult relationships is why we have a church of people. We need wise, helpful people to stand alongside us, to encourage us, to exhort us, to give us perspective, to help us apply and work out these principles in our individual circumstances. But friend, God is using your spouse to draw you to him. He's permitting that difficulty so that you will pray more faithfully. He's permitting you that difficulty so that you will rely more fully on his people. He's permitting you that difficulty so you will run to his word. He is permitting you that difficulty so that you will love him more. The fifth aspect is by cultivating faith instead of fear. So we're supposed to fear God but we're not supposed to be afraid of anything that's frightening, he says. Peter supports this with an example that is admittedly very hard to interpret. In verses five and six, he says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good, And do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, here he's probably referring to, I think he's referring to Genesis 18, verse 12. And it's in a matter concerning Isaac. If you're in Sunday school this morning, actually you heard this uh, referenced. The three men come to visit Abraham and they give him a promise about how he's going to receive God's promised heir. And we see, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out, And my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? Now, this is certainly not one of Sarah's best moments. But just pause for a moment. Aren't you glad that God does not judge you on one single moment in your life, or that you are not the measure of your worst week, your worst moment, or even your worst month? But Peter is focusing, I think, our attention solely on how Sarah, despite her seeming unbelief in this situation, still called Abraham her lord. She was still determined to receive his direction. Sarah's obedience to Abraham, despite her disagreement in this instance, is an example of godly submission. And Peter then gives us the last and arguably the most critical part of submission. Summing up in verse 6, he says, You are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. It would be difficult to be specific about this fear. There are a lot of potential fears in marriage. So suffice it to say, I think this fear is anything that keeps you from trusting and relying on God. So to live faithfully is to live courageously in imitation of Christ. And we can see that in verse 23 of chapter 2 when it says when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit just because we're running out of time. So wives, I encourage you. You have an amazing opportunity to reveal God and his gospel by how you submit to and love your husband. Scripture commands us to give God our highest regard and to use all of our life to point each other to him. And before we're done, I want to spend just a little bit of time on our second point, pointing out husbands. Husbands, how should you reveal Christ to your wife by caring for and honoring her? Peter provides two instructions with two reasons. I'll try and be brief with these. First, husbands should love their wives informed by their own experience of God's grace. Husbands should love their wives informed by their own experience of God's grace. Friends, the grace of Christ comes alive in a marriage when a husband treats his wife the way God has treated him. So look at that first part of verse 7. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. That phrase means literally according to knowledge. And while some preachers think that means husbands should work hard at knowing their wives... Luther said, see to it that the less thoughtful your wife is, the more thoughtful you are. But while I'm all for husbands learning your wives and getting to know your wives and striving to understand them, I don't think that's what Peter means here. I think when Peter speaks about knowledge in this epistle, he almost always is referring to our personal experience of God and his grace. Again, we quoted chapter 1, verses 17 and 19. Just reflect on it briefly said, conduct yourselves with fear. How? Knowing, according to knowledge, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways with the precious blood of Christ. Peter is calling husbands to treat wives in light of how God has treated them. So consider how patient, understanding, kind, loving, and sacrificial God has been to you, husbands. And show that to your wife. Let that be the driving and informing force behind your response to her, not your frustrations at work, not your disappointments. Secondly, husbands should honor their wives because of the role that they have in God's providence. Now, scholars differ over the meaning of this verse 7, the weaker vessel statement. Many think this refers to physical weakness, it could but it could also refer to the wife's more vulnerable status, the role that God has given her in marriage. In this case, Peter is calling husbands to exercise sympathy and compassion toward our wives. In essence, to think about what it's like to be on the receiving end of our leadership. What would it be like for me to hear me say this to me? (laughs) We all know, perhaps, what it's like to work under a really hard employer, a difficult and uncaring boss. And while that's not an equal relationship, I'm not equating the two, think, gentlemen, husbands, how you express things. How would that land if you were on the receiving end? Peter calls husbands to exercise special sympathy and compassion towards our wives. Either way, what this means, whether it's because they're physically weaker or it's a more vulnerable situation, Either way, it means men have a responsibility to refrain from anything that resembles abuse or dominating our wives, and instead to shepherd them with grace. One way you can do that, men, is by deliberately honoring your wife, treating her as precious, taking every opportunity to point out her gifts and her noble character. This means refraining from publicly correcting her. This means never embarrassing our wife. Certainly never humiliate your wife and don't do it ever in public. Husbands, protecting and honoring your wife goes far beyond just offering her physical security. It means caring for her emotionally. It means caring for her spiritually. It means reminding her again and again that you approve of her, that you love her. So put another way, five ways that you can love your wife. One, sympathize with her. Two, learn her language. Learn how she says things. Learn how she understands things. Three, take the initiative. The most common thing I hear from wives talking about their marriage is that they wish that their godly husband would take more initiative in the marriage. Four, verbalize correction carefully and privately if necessary. And fifth, verbalize affirmation accurately. Don't flatter her and regularly. Tell her what's good about her, that's true about her, and do it often. Lastly, Peter supplies two reasons. The first is because those, your wives, have an equal share in Christ. You can see that in verse 7. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of Christ. Remember, husbands, our wives are not an afterthought. They're joint heirs in faith. And we'll skip ahead. Secondly, God... The second reason is that God will not listen to the prayers of an unloving husband. Scripture uses both warnings and blessings to encourage us to obey God. And with one hand, God shows us the amazing price that he paid to save your wife and to give her to you. You should always remember that. And on the other hand, he reminds you that God is her father. He is her defender And he does not take the mistreatment of his daughters idly. Friends, if you do not treat your wife with the honor and the care that God commands, I see no other explanation of this passage than that God will not listen to you until you repent. In Isaiah 1.15... God condemns Israel's pretentious and false piety, saying, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of blood. Husbands, how you treat your wife should be a picture of how God has treated you. Friends, God wants us to come to him with all we are for all of life. He wants us to depend on him for the grace to reveal him to everyone around us, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, and even and especially our wives and our husbands. May it be that the marriages and the families in Grace Community Church would be known as the beacons of God's grace, fortresses of his faithfulness, kindness, and mercy. May God give us gospel-centered, gospel-revealing marriages. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I trust that for some of us it is a hard word, even if it is a good word. I ask that you would encourage those of us in such a condition by the strength of your spirit, by the kindness of your mercy. Father, help us to treat one another in light of what Christ has done for us, to place Christ at the center of our marriage to place Christ at the center of our relationships, to be ruled by Christ, and to be so informed by Christ that we reveal Christ to those that are around us. May Christ be glorious in our lives, in our hearts, and in our marriages, and we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.